News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkist podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers. The city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hello, Harry Siegel. Hey, it's the first episode of the summer. We've had a somewhat less jam-packed week than usual in New York City. Katie Honan is off today, reporting on lifeguard swim tests as the city is again facing, as she's reported, a uh, shortage of beach and pool watchers. And Chrissy is joining from an undisclosed location. So a couple things real quick. You might have missed this in your holiday weekend. There was a truly damning special report on Friday from Steve Martin, the federal monitor overseeing the city's jails, who found that the Department of Correction had suppressed information about five serious and disturbing incidents, that's a quote, involving harm to incarcerated persons over just the past two weeks. That includes a man who was roughed up by CEOs to the point where he was placed on a ventilator, as first reported by the city's Ruvane Blau. And in fact, Steve Martin, not that Steve Martin, said he learned about these incidents from news and social media reports and that they raised, quote, profound uncertainties and significant questions about whether the commissioner and agency officials are capable of handling serious incidents, whether they have the requisite objectivity and transparency necessary. Not good. Adams hasn't addressed that, but he did spend Memorial Day giving a series of speeches that the mayor's office has not yet released transcripts of, but where, according to the Daily News, he said on the deck of the Intrepid that not reciting the Pledge of Allegiance in schools accounts for why just 38% of Americans say they're extremely proud of our country. Adams declared himself, quote, part of the 38 percenters, nodded to Thomas Jefferson and praising service members who, quote, water the tree of freedom with your blood as we, quote, sit under the shade of that tree of freedom protected from the hot rays of socialism and communism and destruction that's playing out across the globe. So later in the day, Adams walked that back a little bit when he's talking to Bedstein, an event hosted by the Black Veterans for Social Justice, brought up the same poll again, and this time added, little caveat, America's not perfect, but let's not get it mixed up. People are not lining the borders to leave America. They're lining the borders to come into America. So, Chrissy, there's going to be lots, probably too much summer fat shoot about this. But you want to talk just a bit about who the mayor is speaking to here and who he's hoping will take the bait and how they respond or over respond to this. Yeah, I'm just still reeling on the fact that who the hell quotes Thomas Jefferson? Like, is Sally Hemings under that bloody tree of democracy he's speaking of? Um, So there's one. I think that your two part question is really important, Harry. First of all, I've missed you terribly. Second of all, the two parts are really interesting because one, there's the audience question and two, there's the debate question. Who's going to take the bait? So we know Eric Adams slides across the ideological spectrum. And like sometimes he'll say things that like sound somewhat progressive or, you know, like, okay. I mean, he sounds like a, a, a blue Democrat. And then he gives speeches like this where he talks about communism, and socialism, never once mentions fascism. And it's like, okay, so you're doubling down for the independence in, in New York. And we know that the, the Democrats in New York are such a weird kaleidoscope of blues. And then you also have you know, a significant number of independents, but also a significant number of Republicans who don't really look at labels in the same exact way. And so like they are receptive to this type of messaging 
from Eric Adams. They don't necessarily see Eric Adams as like a hardcore Democrat. They know he was once theirs. They know he hangs out with lots of Republicans. It's not like they're looking at him the way they looked at Dinkins or, say, de Blasio. So, and, you know, like people in Long Island hated de Blasio, but they just hated de Blasio because he thought he was, they, he was like a communist hippie. The people in Long Island might start to dislike Adams because of immigration stuff and like the tensions they're having there, but it's not because of anything he's saying or doing in the ways that they hated de Blasio and hated David Dinkins. So he sort of has these kind of quasi, like I would say, white ethnics on lock, right? These outer borough folks that hear this speech and they, they get it. They appreciate it. And this is what they want to hear, especially on a Memorial Day. I serve my country. Okay, bye. So he stays in these types of situations, I would argue, in the middle, if not leaning very comfortably to the right. Again, you're quoting Thomas Jefferson, and I still can't wrap my mind around that. I think who's going to take the bait? This is where, you know, I get annoyed with the press corps because... If they choose to make this a two-week story, like they did when he went in front of a whole God. bunch of clergy and said, we need to have prayer in schools, of course, every mayor says that. What mayor doesn't say that? So they make it a two-week story, and it's like Eric Adams, you know, throws out something with the right hand and then does something else with the left hand. So in this case, if they choose to, and it's, you know, it's one more other weekend, it's a little slow week, you know, things are going on. But if he, if they choose to harp on this story for a week. We know that when they were harping on the prayer in school story, some stuff was going down in Rikers that needed to be on the front page, and it wasn't. It was barely on the pages. So what happens in the month of June? I want to hear the mayor have some hard conversations about pride and pride, you know, pride month, what's going on in targets across the country where we're letting, you know, a few white nationalists, you know, homophobes take down exhibits. It's like, are you going to make a statement about how that won't happen in New York at all? Are you going to talk to businesses and say, put it on the front page of the paper, the mayor supports LGBTQ plus New Yorkers. It's the month of June and we need to be doing it all 12 months. I don't know, because what we'll probably hear is communism and socialism and this speech. And it's like, well, what's he doing to combat fascism? Because it's on the rise in New York. What's he doing to sort of, you know, to the point of your stories to what's going on in some of our jails? It's like, we still keep kicking this Rikers can down the road. How many mayors are we going to do that? Like, how many more months do we have to hear these horrid stories? And we know in the summertime, folks are just packed in there in just deplorable conditions, especially for a nation as wealthy as ours. So I think that we're going to have a lot of, you know, Eric Adams, it's like, as much as he's antagonistic towards the media, he knows how to sort of be antagonistic towards the media and keep the red meat stories in the in the bin that he wants them in. And he's very frustrated and he's annoyed. And he's like, you know, first of all, I don't understand how elected officials get annoyed with the media. This is, we all signed up to do a job. But I think he's really good at keeping the ire and the catnip and the, the sort of frenzy in a bin that he actually defines to a certain extent, even though he just talks narrative. off the cup. Yeah. Just, just narrative. Like, while, we can talk about this for doing, forever. Mm -hmm. While he's doing something else. So whether or not, you know, the editors or the journalists take the bait. I mean, I can always tell when a story is, I would say, you know, useless. It's like the number of journalists from different outlets who call me to ask about the same story. And I was like, and they might have like their own jazzy little angles to it. But it's just like, you guys are probably focusing on the wrong thing. If five different journalists are calling me about the same exact story, then that means 
you know, sure. It's, and it's not that important. Like, I, I don't think that, you know, saying in front of a whole bunch of rabbis and priests and pastors that prayer in schools is a good thing. Yeah. That story was like a week and a half story. And then Why? after that week and a half, after that week and a half, he mentioned, oh, by the way, God told me I would be, uh, I would be elected mayor in yeah. 2022. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What about black ethnics, though? You talked about white ethnics there. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> you want to talk about my book? I, I do. I do here because, um, <laughs> you know, Adams has this base. He's brought in like, like, like a number of, uh, of, of, uh, homophobes of color as advisors in his administration has sort of stood by them and said, we're going to have this, this broader coalition. We're going to open a church calling people, but we're going to do right by LGBTQ New Yorkers, as he's put it. A lot of people in that community were understandably very upset. And I, I do think that, that Adams in some ways, when he's talking about God, when he's talking about uh, pull your pants up and uh, search your, your child's teddy bear for the weed, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that this is, this is part of his base of a, uh, <clears throat> Also, older black churchgoers who who mm-hmm. are comfortable with, with with a certain sort, and just speaking of intersectionality of of conservative politics, mm-hmm. uh, that often, among other things, aren't terribly gay friendly. Right. Well, first of all, first things first, black people aren't the only homophobes. Absolutely. Right? Um, just for our listeners out there, mm-hmm. I know that's not what you said, but I always have to make that statement because it's like the Thanks. way it's oftentimes framed. It's like, oh, so black people are the only ones who don't like LGBTQ plus folks. Settle down. Right. Um. But I think that your points are incredibly valid. There are a few things. One, you know, what I write about in my academic life is that, you know, because the Republican Party has largely chosen to cast their lot with white supremacists, Black people are captured in a Democratic Party. So you've got 90% of Black people who are Democrats. But if we actually had a functioning two-party system and white folks weren't, you know, running around um flying confederate flags in the republican party then you actually would have a lot more black people who would choose between the two parties and oftentimes because of conservative politics you know don't forget the vast majority of black people live in the south um which is, tends to be a little more conservative those are things that actually could be appealing whether it's more, more conservative lgbtq plus laws right and don't forget the intersectionality of there are a ton of gay black people too so that's not always the case um, but we do know that there are a lot of Republican policies that would be attractive to black voters. This is why Eric Adams makes sense, right? So he wasn't running after the Chrissy Greers, uh, in, in his campaign, right? He was like, I'm going after the homeowners in Brooklyn and Queens who understand the nuance of, I don't want riffraff on my block. I am a homeowner and I have a mortgage. However, I want my son or daughter to, or myself to be able to go from the subway home without getting mugged or worse, right? So you need to clean up my neighborhood because of disinvestment. We know this always happens. But also, I want to make sure that the cops don't come and harass my kid for no reason on some random stop and frisk. So there is a two-part conversation, actually tripart conversation, because you know, when, when, why, when Maya Wiley says in the second debate that she'll decrease the number of cops on the subway, right? And that's when I was like, okay, so I think Maya just lost, unfortunately, this particular, not this debate, but like the whole race. Because there were a lot of white folks who heard that, but they were like, uh, I really, really like her, but that is not the strategy. Like, in theory, we don't want more cops. In practice, give me all the cops, right? And same with black voters, especially more progressive black voters. But we have to remember, there are a lot of black people who are cops. 
So like this whole takeaway, decreased policing, which I'm always bringing that alarm, right? But it's like, I don't have any cops in my family. I'm not a civilian uh, NYPD officer or, you know, in the NYPD is a civilian capacity of which there are many black people, mm-hmm. there are many black uniform officers. It is and an entree correction into the middle officers. class. And correction and corrections officers, officers. Especially. And it has been an entree into the middle class. Mm-hmm. Eric Adams understands that. My issue with Eric Adams is always thus. His first inclination whenever there's a problem is that he thinks like a police officer first and a mayor second, maybe third, right? And so I need, I want someone who thinks like a mayor first. But there are a lot of people who were like, you know, because of crime, 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 which I think is wrapped up in a larger white nationalist conversation. But if everything's about crime and then you have a mayor who's like, but I was a police officer and this is how I think about things morning, noon and night. That's very attractive to a lot of people, not just white ethnics, but black ethnics as well. And, you know, people throughout the city who also do live in higher crime density neighborhoods, which is very real, right? Or people who take the subways at 6 a.m. as opposed to 10 a.m. like me, right? And so I understand that there are a lot of, there are a lot of different ways that people live in New York. Right. And we have to understand what they're experiencing, what they're hearing. Remember, this is why I was so clear that Eric Adams understood people when he was talking about the rats and all the journalists were calling me like, oh, he drowned rats on the steps of, you know, Brooklyn City Hall. It's like, stop laughing at this man. Like if you've ever sort of seen a rat and your skin is crawled, it's like, imagine one being in your home. Imagine several being in your home. Imagine not being able to keep food in your house or like worrying that a rat's going to bite your child. Like, if this man understood the the pain and the fear that New Yorkers lived in in certain communities for years, like he, I can't imagine it's torture and no politician ever took you seriously because you're poor or you're black or Latino or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden you have a politician who's like, hey, let me talk to the Swedes and see if I can figure out a rat trap. Oh, wait, I did figure it out. And like, let me show you how it's going to work so you don't have to live in fear like that to me, A, that's public service. But B, it's like that, that's an understanding of when all the politicians are looking over here, Eric Adams does tend to look in the opposite direction. Now, sometimes it's very frustrating because that opposite direction is like, what are you doing? Why are we talking about communism and socialism when we're all over here looking at fascism, sir? Please look over here at fascism because a lot of your supporters are into it. So he's a complicated man. He's fascinating. And I feel like, you know, these polls and, you know, we talked about this a little bit bit ago. These polls right now are so early, right? All they do is just give us a, a snapshot as to where we're going to be, you know, two years from now. It's like, oh, what did, what do we think about in 2023? But like, we don't know how this city's going to look in two years. We don't know where the money, you know, from Albany and D.C. or immigration situations can look like. I feel like if someone challenges from the left, they better get coordinated. Because if you have a whole bunch of scattershot lefties, Eric Adams zooms back into the mayoralty. We already know that there's an incumbency advantage in political science literature. It is difficult when Black incumbents have a white challenger. So that does change the calculus considerably. However, if the left can't get it together, it's just going to be a whole bunch of vanity projects of people saying that they can do a better job. And Eric Adams is going to be like, show me. You can't. So beat it. So very newscaster voice. A new slingshot strategy survey two years out finds that uh, Eric Adams would lead public advocate Jumani Williams 45 to 25 in a hypothetical Democratic primary, 
where he would crush city controller Brad Lander by an even stronger 48 to 17. But, but, but in a generic ballot against a Democrat, Adams only wins in the margin of error 42 to 38. Notably, the fellas like Eric Adams considerably more than the ladies, according to said polling, indicating that a compelling female challenger with a credible message and a not overly crowded field of people to his left could be in a position to wage a significant challenge. Of course, as we saw with Bill de Blasio, you can have lots of people talk lots of stuff about what they're about to do. And if you're the incumbent, lots of those people end up just getting out of the way after testing those waters a lot of the time. Maybe it's easier for someone to challenge now that, that, that it seems like even after Hochul's scare, like Republicans are not terribly relevant. They don't have a bench. They don't have an actual party operation here. The best they could do was, you know, Curtis, I owe $500,000 a month in alimony. Sliwa, thank you, John Katsimatidis, for paying me. What's up? But Adams is in an interesting position where there is this real political movement to his left for more substantial reform that has not fully gotten its footing in how we're going to win a citywide contest. Maya Wiley finishes third, right? It's like basically, to some extent, a black-white and Manhattan out of borough split between Eric Adams and Catherine Garcia finishing one-two. And the most prominent person who's really from the, the more organized left, we need broader and systemic change ground, is third place. So I, I am curious... It's very early, but how folks are going to be positioning themselves in relation to him. And lastly, as the uh, city council, you know, Katie just spoke with Adrian Adams, the speaker. We've had her on the pod, did a really inter interesting interview where Adrian, no relation Adams, is really, you know, a, a, a moderate church going, you know, business or business past, you know, sort of Democrat is like Eric Adams is being hysterical about the migrants. This isn't a policy. It's like a, a series of panic responses and like trying to find a way to get to a citywide response that holds New York to its progressive democratic values at a moment where it's not clear where that's going. And as you're saying, Chrissy, there's tons of time. I don't know where any of this goes. I know reporters are going to keep calling you about rats or speeches. And the rats is a serious thing, but in, in a silly way where, hey, this is trending on chart beat. And my editor's like, call someone quick. We need a story. Right. And that Adams is masterful at, at holding that conversation. And lastly, at feeding journalists, right? Hey, it's Memorial Day weekend. There's nothing all that much to discuss. The people who are working need something. Like, let me just throw a little chum in the water and they'll, they'll all circle over there. And this Rikers mm -hmm. report will barely mm -hmm. get noticed. You know, that, mm -hmm. that's smart. He's good at this stuff. He is good at this stuff. And, like, and we have to recognize that he is. And, you know, I think it's because... If we're being honest, which we try and be on this podcast, you know, Eric Adams is not your traditional black politician. And by that, I mean, you know, a lot of especially white progressive voters, you know, they're very comfortable with, you know, oh, David Dinkins, who's so eloquent, you know, and articulate the ones who didn't get the memo that white people can't call black people articulate. Right. But like they're accustomed to the Cory Joe Biden. <laughs> right. He's clean and articulate. Oh, Lord, Joey. Um, but, you know, the Cory Booker, the Barack Obama, the Hakeem Jeffries to a certain extent. Um, but Eric Adams, as he leans into, right, he's like, I'm more blue collar. I'm a working class man. I'm a work class mayor. And, you know, some white voters aren't accustomed to not just the speaking pattern, but speaking off the cuff and sort of being more direct than your traditional black politician who is towing this line because he's trying to get a certain 
segment of the white voting population. Whereas we've talked about before, Eric Adams didn't even go to the Upper West Side, right? He didn't go to those five neighborhoods in Brooklyn where all the journalists live. It was like, I know how y'all are voting and it's not for me. So guess what? You guys have four other options between Catherine and Maya and Sean and Scott and, you know, Andrew, I guess, to a certain extent. Um, so he's he knows who he is and he knows who's receptive to his messaging. And I think as we get closer to 2025, to be very honest, we're going to see probably a more rightward leaning mayor because he knows that he can capture sort of the, the quiet closet Democrats who kind of like what he's saying, right? Which we always talk about. It's like, we love immigration. It's like, well, can immigrants come to your neighborhood? Absolutely not. So he's going to capture those people who would never say that they voted for Eric Adams, but low key they will. And then, you know, white outer borough and black outer borough voters who are just like, yeah, I think he's kind of doing a job and keeping the city clean and running enough. And here we are. Shout out to every neighborhood with refugees welcome here, posters welcome here. And shout out, of course, to the New Yorkers who are stepping up, finding ways to get uh, uh, food, clothing, support to people who've opened up homes to offer uh, to offer asylum seekers showers and all that. But that is a smaller share of the city. And as Eric Adams keeps correctly saying, a lot of New Yorkers do want to know what the price tag is, what we can afford to give to people who are newly arrived here versus people who have long been here. Like, these are politically very sensible things to say, and they point to the difference between legislators who are elected in generally low turnout primaries and are concerned about primary challenges and a mayor who does have to represent the quiet Democrats and some of the not Democrats and, and people who have more complicated and ambivalent feelings about a lot of this as it becomes considerably less hypothetical in New York as opposed to the border places. And we're figuring out what this actually means and how much decency and at what cost. It reminds me of that line from Watermelon Man when, uh, you know, the wife is watching the news in Detroit and she's so sympathetic. And then by the end of the movie, she goes, I'm liberal to a point. And I think that, you know, there's some institutional changes that have to happen for us to support. We are a city of immigrants. We're a nation of immigrants. We always have been. Um, but there, there is a price tag to this. I get it. Um, but we have to be honest about, well, what, what price tag are we comfortable with? Right. I mean, the changing, you know, what makes New York so beautiful is that neighborhoods consistently change. I mean, they're living organisms. So we've seen these shifts of like different waves of immigrants coming in at different points in time. And like we might be in a shifting moment where neighborhoods start to change and that's always uh, uncomfortable for a lot of folks. But I, I hope that we can have a productive conversation. Now, this is an institutional thing, but I always find that, you know, I, I'm not always great at quarterly uh, sometimes it's just twice a year, but like, this is actually a really good time to clean out your closets and your drawers. So as organizations are looking for, um, clothes for the influx of new New Yorkers, as I will call them, it's a great time for people if they're looking for something small to do to just like, you're not going to fit in those shorts from last summer. Like, let's be honest. So like put it in, um, and do your donation that way. But again, we can't rely on just generosity and charity of New Yorkers, we need some substantive policy from a top-down approach. Kathy Hochul seems like she's got her hands busy with all these deals that seem to keep benefiting her husband. So I don't know if her head's in the game right now, but um, I mean, she'll be looking at her own primary challenger. I am so sure. And that's for a different Bye. episode.
her hokul was promised she's got stuff coming to do the most limited possible help from the rest of the state and budgetary support. And of course, the state budget is mostly coming from New York. It'll be SUNY campuses opening up for a very limited number of asylum seekers. It'll be a handful of like villages and towns and counties with more sympathetic governance offering up an shrinkingly small number of spaces. And, and New York, as Adams keeps saying, I don't love how he's handled all this. But when he says we're not getting support from the federal government, first and foremost, we're not getting much from the state, and we need actual solutions, there is something to that. Of course, when people on the left here try to offer actual solutions, he just says, ah, you're sniping from the sidelines, and I'm the only one who's acting. Mm -hmm. And that gets very obnoxious, but he is legitimately in a difficult and complicated position in trying. The problem is, I think he keeps wrong-footing himself. They did tents when tents made no sense. They took down those tents before anyone were in them. Now it's the start of the summer. It's actually the point where tents could make a lot of sense and people could be outside for short periods of time in quote unquote respite centers while we're figuring out where folks can go longer term. And he's not doing that. It just seems a lot like he's trying to control the narrative while actually responding to things and stay a step ahead of that and thinking too much about the narrative and not enough about what actually needs doing in rapidly shifting circumstances where you're often, if you're prepared, you're going to look like the fool. Because you're setting things up for folks who are not coming in that exact time frame and then pulling it down. Like, this is very hard. It is a hard situation for a mayor in a sanctuary city with the right to shelter for now that he is, of course, challenging in the courts to figure out how to handle this, where you're putting in resources, what you're building that's semi-permanent, what's extremely short-term and going to shift, and where those facilities are. And the choices are depressing. Are you going to open up school gyms, albeit ones that are not connected to those elementary schools? Are you going to reopen old prison facilities to find places to house people as folks keep arriving here? And that's real complicated. We're talking about something like 1% of the city right now, you know, right. a little more, like 90,000 people have arrived, uh, many of whom really need shelter, don't have support networks here and can't work. Like this, this is hard. It's not just a poster anymore. And that's yeah, and, and stuck with this. And I don't, I don't envy any mayor that's making this decision. I definitely don't mm -hmm. envy the mayor of the largest city in, in the country trying to make this decision with a lot of, you know, financial constraints, but also financial influencers who have their own thoughts on where things should and should not be, especially when it comes to their own personal neighborhoods. But I guess, Harry, this is then my larger question, because we keep talking about Eric Adams, but we know that Eric Adams can't do any of this without a strong administration to help implement these ideas, to also help him think through these ideas. So the underlying issue that I think I'm saying, but not saying, because I'm still trying to, to detangle it, it's like, is this an issue with just Eric Adams or should we start sprinkling some of, you know, the side eye and possibly the blame on people who are lost balls and high weeds? Like, do they fully understand their role in the administration and helping to solve some of these problems? Do they have the skill set? Do they have the connections? Do they have the history with New York City to understand sort of the problem? And do they have the creativity to think through these issues? I'm not necessarily sold, you know, on some of the people in his inner circle who I think are corrupt individuals who don't actually have the vision for this city. I think they have a vision for themselves and their future bank accounts, but I don't think that they have a vision 
for the city. And so if you have, if you have one or two of those people around, that's a problem. But it seems as though Eric Adams has a very strong tolerance for corrupt, inept people and does not mind second and third, fourth chances and doesn't mind having them in his inner circle. And that to me is also what makes me go from rooting for the mayor, who I think is very smart, as you all, you know, I have said tons of times, I think I'd put him in the top 10 New Yorkers who are walking the city right now, who understand the city. I put myself in the top 1%, which I think is pretty generous, but like, I would put him in the top 10 people. Like, I think he gets it, but I don't understand why he is hanging out with like C-level intellects. Now there are theories as to why men do that, but I'm not convinced that his, <laughs> I'm not convinced that the people around him who are in charge of helping him think through these ideas are actually up for the task. Chrissy, it's great talking with you this way again. I have missed this. I've missed, I missed you terribly. Never so, leave again. So the Herks, right? Love that acronym. That's OEM. The respite centers are, are health and hospitals. It's Wait, all scrambled me, around. Tell me the Herc. What's a, what's a Herc acronym? Oh man, I I I, I want to spell out what it is, but I'm gonna I'm gonna botch it. The Hercs are the big places that lots of asylum seekers can go to, but are not open to other people in the shelter systems. The respite centers, which is the administration's new term of art, are these short-term places like the gyms they were putting cots in with no showers. That they then you know folded the cots back up. The people are only supposed to stay in for a day or two, but because it's outside the right to shelter, no one's monitoring or watching this. And so there are all these acronyms, all these people in his administration who are responsible for different parts of the response. And as you're saying, the fundamental question is, can the Adams administration administer these responses? Adams has been around government for a long time. He's had real legislative power, like when he was in the state Senate, and he was actually real responsible for the last set of casino licenses in New York. Like he knows, he knows that. But he's not run a gigantic government before. He has a somewhat different philosophical approach than de Blasio, one where, where de Blasio had to squint through everything and pre-K is the main thing, right? Where he's going to give more money to poorer people, tail it to city stuff. Adams is focused on, like, black folks in New York who've been here a long time, who are New Yorkers, deserve a larger slice of the pie and a fairer deal, like, more directly and more obviously, without that always being the language, but with that being pretty clear over time. All that seems fine and solid. But then he's got this dance with them that brung you, which is also Herc's Humanitarian Emergency Relief Centers. Chrissy just uh, discreetly texted me. Thank you. Um, <laughs> dance with them that brung you, which is often them that I partied with, uh, my boys, sometimes my girls and my church folks and, and, and my people. And that inner circle type loyalty, I get it in a lot of ways, but it also can limit you in a lot of ways when there's circumstances you haven't been through before, when you are running a big city, and uh, when, when those folks have not been through these sort of exercises and crises before. I do think that the next few months in a lot of ways are going to be a real moment of truth. Up till now, it's been how can Adams do with the stuff he promised, with what he said about crime, about fairness that he ran on, and now it's how is this mayor able to deal with the crisis not of his making in those circumstances? And he is trying to talk his way through a lot of this to buy time um, and, and to do it on the fly. And, and we're going to see. It, it's, it's a tough challenge. And he does have the benefit of having a solid political base that is going to make it harder for someone to challenge him, including, I, I think, from on the left. But we will see. A lot can happen. 
between now yeah. and 2025. Yeah. I mean, well, I think you're, you you mentioned earlier um, that, you know, the Republicans don't really have a strong base. I mean, rep- I you know, Adams is like the Republican proxy, right? They'll put up some bridesmaid just as, you know, a favor for the party. But I do think, you know, I think that there are going to be a, a lot of people who are interested in challenging him from the left. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people who don't necessarily have experience, they might be great New Yorkers and have done things, but that's not, that's not experience. Um, I don't see Jumani and Brad Lander really making inroads, you know, because there are a lot of progressives who like progressives in certain roles, but maybe not necessarily in leadership roles. You know, executive not in the executive. Mm-hmm. Like the executive role is a totally different thing. So it's like, yes, I'm a progressive and I like progressives. It's like, well, should they believe in things? It's like, oh. <laughs> you know, like we need some other levers of power. I do think, you know, we'll, we'll go down the list of candidates later just because I have, I have some potential candidates, people who are running, which I think are bad ideas. Um, oh, we should probably tell our listeners, hey, start making your voting plan. Election day is June 27th and there's early voting. So um, we, yet again, are asking people to go to the polls as New Yorkers. So I know that school's ending and folks are starting to get their travel together. So start putting together a voting plan if you have not done so already, um, just because Election Day will be here in basically a month. Ooh. Life comes at you fast. Elections in New York come at you even faster primary day and more frequently. june 27th <laughs> it's gonna be ranked choice for all the local stuff so think about that if you don't know who's on your ballot who's running for your city council seat for instance do a little research go to the board of election site just to see your sample ballot and what's going to be there uh check out places like the city and gotham gazette and others that have uh coverage and voting guides of, of what's going to be a ridiculously low turnout election but one that's really going to matter and show up and vote you can do it yeah. Um, just as a sidebar, Ben, Max, and I are celebrating our 10-year friend diversary this year because we met working, doing primary stuff, um, you know, on WNYC during the 2013 elections. Because we always have elections. So even when Beautiful. you guys go vote, you might meet a new friend that should be friends with for years. <laughs> Do it. It's worth it. Make friends. We'll, of course, have Ben Max on for primary night, as we've had for every election night since we've started. Ben being the executive editor of Gotham Gazette, a top, top, top New Yorker and a uh, a real asset to this pod who uh, has brought insight on those election nights to, to what's actually happening, what's at play. And uh, we thank you, Ben. I'm texting him to make sure he's free. Already. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We're an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were me, Christina Greer, and Harry Siegel. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. And as ever, thank you, dear listener, for joining us and making it this far. 
Be kind, be cool, be well, and we'll be back next week with more.